Our lesson this morning comes from the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear these words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Dave was an umpire. And he was headed to umpire ball game when a police officer caught him speeding. And his usual excuses didn't convince the officer. He claimed he didn't know what the speed limit was. He said his insurance rates would go up if he was ticketed. He even promised never to speed again if the officer would just let it go. But the officer handed him a ticket anyway and said, well, if you're unhappy about this, you can take it to court. A few months later, Dave was umpiring a softball game and the police officer came up to bat. The two immediately recognized each other. The officer asked, how did court go? And Dave, the umpire, looked him in the eye and said, you'd better swing at every pitch. <laughs> Children, students, employees, and spouses all know how to get revenge. The problem is once we take revenge, the other party often feels hurt and they want greater revenge. And the cycle, the insidious cycle, has begun. That's what Jesus is warning about. And he's doing it reminding the Hebrews of something that is in their legal code, lex talionis, the law of revenge. And the Old Testament does say if you're fighting and there is an injury 
and any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. In the book of Leviticus, it puts it this way, anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. The book of Deuteronomy has these words about lex talionis, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. These laws were put in place before a, a justice system existed. These laws were put into place so that the victim, their family members, their relatives or their clan would not inflict heavy damage or inappropriate revenge for some act of violence that had bought, brought about harm. This Lex Talionis code is found in the law codes of Hammurabi. It's found in the Old Testament. It's even found in the Roman Empire, almost the same words as the Old Testament, that there is a limit on what can be gained when harm is inflicted. It's become part of our mindset, this notion of revenge, this idea of paying someone back for an accident or for a mistake or for harm done. In the mid-80s, Frank Robinson was coaching the Baltimore Orioles. He spent many years playing for the Orioles. Now he found himself as the coach of the Orioles. And the Orioles were up to bat and the opposing team's pitcher hit one of the Orioles players and, and the player took his base. The inning, that half of the inning ended. The other team was up to bat. The Orioles pitcher stood on the mound and the first pitch in the next inning, right down the middle of the plate for a called strike. And Frank Robinson in, for, in front of 48,000 fans called timeout and rushed the mound screaming at the pitcher. Don't you know? Don't you know that when somebody hits one of our players, the very first pitch in the next inning, you hit the opposing team's player? It's the rule of Lex Talionis. It's the rule of Major League Baseball. It's the rule of our culture. That's why you can't drive the interstate without seeing Morris Bart and Gordon McKernan staring back at you from all those posters. Had an injury? Call Gordon. You know, when I moved to New Orleans in 1980, Morris Bart was on the television with his first they had approved attorneys doing commercials in 1980. And I don't know what's going on with Morris Bart. He has not changed in 40 years. Is he using hair product? We don't know. But there it is. If you're harmed, you get a payback. 
Except Jesus said, not so fast. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And we think, not in this lifetime. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, tells the story of an Irish boxer, a very successful Irish boxer who was converted and became an evangelist, a preacher. And it happened one day that this boxer-turned-preacher was in a new town setting up his evangelistic tent when a couple of the town thugs noticed what he was doing. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know his background. They made a few insulting remarks, and the Irishman merely turned and looked at them. Pressing their luck, one of the bullies took a swing and struck a glancing blow on the side of the ex-boxer's face. He shook it off, said nothing at all, and stuck out his jaw. And the fella took another swing. It was a glancing blow on the other side. At that point, the preacher swiftly took off his coat, rolled up his sleeves, and announced, the Lord gave me no further instructions, and continued to wallop the thug. We like that. Because we took Jesus literally. Right cheek, left cheek, aha. Hit me twice, I can get you on that third time, can I? Jesus says, hold on. Just wait a minute. Go the extra mile. Reconcile before you're sued. Take care. Paul put it this way. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, bless those who persecute you, bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony one with the other, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, do not claim to be wiser than you are, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. By doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. And that's how we say it. I'm going to do something nice for you so I can heap some burning coals on your head. Ha, 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 ha. Except that's not what it means. Paul's quoting the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs says, if your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink, for you will heap coals of fire on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. What is this coals of fire we're heaping on their heads? In that culture, that's how they carried the cinders or the hot coals they used to build the fires that kept their houses warm and that lit their stoves. 
So what Paul is saying and what the writer of Proverbs is saying, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you also put charcoal in their grills. And they will remember your kindness. So never repay evil for evil, Paul said. Work to live in peace with everyone and overcome evil with good. That's no fun. It's more fun to plot revenge. But Jesus said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. How in the world are we supposed to love our enemies? Three suggestions I make to you. First of all, be fully present. Be fully present when you're in the, the company of your enemy. Is that how we do it? Are we fully present or are we detached? If you're there having a conversation with somebody who's done you wrong, somebody you've kind of plotted against, somebody you're thinking, well, they deserve a little evil. They deserve a little retribution or a little revenge. Are you really listening to them? No. Are you really paying attention to them? No. You're plotting. What would happen if you were fully present with them in that moment? If you were really listening If you were paying attention to your adversary or to your enemy or to someone who had done you ill, do you suppose you might hear things you hadn't heard before? Do you suppose you might gain insights to their character and to their personality that you didn't have? So, we love our enemies when we're fully present with them. Hmm, that's a tough one. We love our enemies when we practice love rather than judgment. We judge everybody. We judge our spouses for not doing life our way. We judge our friends for having different political views than we hold. We judge our adult children for making choices we think they shouldn't. We judge our coworkers for not doing the job the way we think the job should be done. We judge our neighbors for not going to church or responding to the gospel. We judge Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, and other faiths, along with atheists and agnostics, for not following Jesus as Savior and Lord. We judge the younger generation or the older generation for not making choices that we would approve of. We judge people for their different social classes, races, ethnicities, appearances, or education. We judge them for dressing up or dressing down. We judge them for the movies they attend or the, the cars they buy or the music they listen to. We even judge people based on their Enneagram number or their Myers-Briggs profile. We judge people and we turn the differences into virtues. Guess who has the virtue side? Me. Yeah. 
me. And we make of others enemies or villains. We simply consider it's normal to disapprove of anyone who is different. And then we take it a step further. We want to try to change them. We just know if they would see the world as we see the world, everything would be okay. And you're starting to wonder, well, isn't it a part of our mission as Christians to want people to believe like we believe? Aren't we supposed to try and get people to change? And my answer is yes and no. We want people to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. We want them to be forgiven. We want them to be baptized in God's grace. We want them to be transformed by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. But no, it's not our mission to judge people. Even in the name of standing up for the truth. For when we judge people, we treat them as objects. And only God who is infinitely wiser and greater than us can judge. So what does that mean? It means we can come to every conversation curious. We can even approach people who are making choices we consider biblically wrong, tragic, or foolish. We can approach them in a Christ-like manner. We can see them as an individual and as a person. And we can sincerely ask them, tell me more. Help me understand how you see the world. Help me understand how you are approaching this decision or how you reached this conclusion. So when you approach your enemies, are you fully present or are you distracted? Do you approach them lovingly or judging them? Here's the third one, and it's tough. Do you approach them in an open manner? Open to be willing to be changed, to change, or just thoroughly closed? You've got your mind made up. You're not going to change anything you believe. Are we supposed to do that? Can we approach non-Christians that way? Why not? Can you not find truth and love and beauty in another person regardless of their faith affirmation? One of the most stubborn reformers was John Calvin. John Calvin ruled in Geneva, Switzerland, and John Calvin was so ruthless that one guy named Michael Servetus came through Geneva one day, and Servetus disagreed with John Calvin on just the most minute theological construct about the Holy Spirit. And John Calvin had Servetus thrown into prison until his uh, beliefs changed. So John Calvin was rather dogmatic. 
But this is what John Calvin wrote about Roman and Greek philosophers and thinkers who were not Christian. This is what Calvin said, and it's important. Whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us what the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. John Calvin would say, be open to your enemies. So those with whom we disagree or those enemies that we find in our lives, we can approach them and be present in the conversation. We can be loving and not judging. We can be open to having our minds changed and receiving a deeper, a deeper understanding from somebody that doesn't think or believe the way I do. So they hung Jesus on the cross. That's what his enemies did to him. And what did Jesus do? From the cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus issues a clarion call for us to give up the notion of revenge, for us being vigilantes, for us trying to get even for harm both perceived and real that has been done to us. He told us to love our enemies And he said, go the extra mile. Matthew is written in a time where the Roman army is occupying Palestine and Roman soldiers could compel Jewish men to carry their packs one mile. And you better believe that there were mile markers all over the roads in Palestine so a Jewish man or a Jewish boy would know if he had accomplished the one mile. And when he got to the one mile, I'm quite certain that Jewish man or boy would just drop the pack and walk off because his servitude was accomplished. Jesus said, don't do that. Take it an extra mile. Don't you wonder what happened in that extra mile? Don't you wonder about that Roman soldier thinking, what is going on here? Why is he doing this? Do you suppose there were some conversations that were held? Roman soldiers asking the Jewish people and later the Christian people, why are you doing this? Love compels me. What is it like to walk a mile with your enemy?
What is it like to walk an extra mile with those with whom you disagree? So this is a sermon that comes with a homework assignment. We've had 19 of these listening and learning sessions and Craig, all he has told me about them is you have been so loving and so kind. Even disagreeing, you have not been disagreeable. He has had no problems in those sessions. But what we have discovered is that what we know to be true about us there are some on this side of the issue and there are some on the other side of the issue. So here's what I want you to practice doing in the coming weeks. I want you to walk a mile and then a second mile with your friends here at Trinity with whom you disagree on this matter not to convert them to your side. I just want you to be fully present with your friends. I want you to love your friends. I want you to pray for your friends. I want you to understand that when this is all over, what matters are the relationships we have with Jesus Christ and the relationships we have with one another. Certainly we pray, but in the coming weeks, let's be willing to walk the extra mile. Would you stand and pray with me? Oh God, help us to be loving and forgiving. Help us to be patient and kind. And we pray for the strength to turn the other cheek and to walk the extra mile. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.